Mark, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Hear God's word. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's pray. God of mercy, God of love, God of all goodness, we pray that your word would come alive in us today, that you would give us a fresh vision of your mercy and love, that it would transform us from the inside out. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. So I recently got new glasses. Um, They are trifocals, please don't be jealous. Um, My eye doctor had like a euphemism for that. He called them progressives, Um, which is cute, but it's really, they're trifocals. Um, My eyes are getting progressively more elderly. It's fine. I feel fine about it, clearly. Um, uh, And sometimes I forget that I'm I'm not wearing them because they're still pretty new. So I'll get up and I'll do my daily routine and I'll forget to put them on and it's not until I'm out and about and I, and I wonder what the, the green things on the horizon are that just are sticking up everywhere and I realize, oh, those are trees and you can't see them because you don't have your glasses on. So I, I forget that I'm wearing them sometimes. I forget to put them on, uh, forget that I'm not wearing them and forget to put them on. And I think um, interpreting scripture, um, we are all actually wearing glasses um, and we, we forget that we're wearing them. Um, And I like to think about interpretive lenses in reading scripture as like a set of glasses in front of me uh, that I can choose to put on. And what I sometimes forget is that I'm already wearing a set of lenses. It's a matter of whether I'm aware of them, whether I have intentionally chosen which set of lenses is going to be best for me uh, in a given context. Um, But I think it's important to be honest about the fact that uh, we do wear different lenses when we come to the Bible We could put on a pair of lenses in the morning when we turn to scripture for the purpose of comfort. And I do this a lot. I read through the lens of my belief that God loves and cherishes me, that God is going to comfort me 
through scripture when I read it. I need that a lot. But when I'm preparing to preach, one of my favorite kinds of lenses to put on, my favorite set of glasses, is to read the Bible through a socio-political framework. I love to dig into um, commentaries and do the research and figure out what was going on in this time. Where did this piece of scripture um, find its roots in, a, in the community that it came from? And what was happening? What were the people there caring about and thinking about? What were they suffering from? Who was in power and how were they handling that power? I find it fascinating to look at those power dynamics and I find lots of insight about how God's word is alive in the world today by reading the Bible this way. And when I read the Bible this way, and when a lot of scholars read the Bible this way, we tend to talk about Jesus as part of this minoritized group in Palestine. In terms of his religion, as a Jewish person, his ethnicity, um, he's living in occupied land in the Roman Empire. And this empire is known for its cruelty and its harsh treatment of the people groups that it conquered. So we typically would place Jesus, when we're reading scripture this way, on the underside of the powers that be. And we see that Jesus often identifies himself on the margins with people who are suffering, who are not in power, people who are oppressed. So I'm used to reading the Bible that way. And if you're used to reading the Bible that way, this passage should cut you up short. It should stop you in your tracks. Because in this passage, Jesus is actually the one with power. He's a male rabbi educated within a patriarchal society. He's got a large following of people that are providing for his basic needs. He has the attention of the ruling elite, the Pharisees. So within his smaller group, he is powerful. In an earlier chapter just before this, he's doing a long discourse with the Pharisees, and he's going back and forth with them and challenging them. Whenever you see someone challenging the powers like that, you know they, they have power too. So if we read with an eye toward power dynamics, we have to be careful here in this passage because Jesus is situated in the seat of political and social power. He's in Tyre and Sidon, so he's not at home, but he's still powerful. And what does Jesus do from this position of power? Well, eventually, Jesus uses his power to praise this woman he encounters and to heal her daughter. But we can't skip to that. There's another set of lenses that we like to read the Bible with. And they're a set of lenses that say, Jesus always needs to be the hero of every part of every story. And when we read with those glasses, sometimes we miss the piece of the story that's about Jesus the man. Yes, fully God and fully human. So let's watch this Jesus encounter this woman. Before he heals the girl, the text does, says that he does three things. First, he's silent. A woman in the street is calling to him for help, for her child, and Jesus doesn't respond. 
the NIV says it, he didn't answer her a word. Not one word. And the silence that he gives her, that's even too much for his disciples. For his friends, silence was too much mercy for this woman. They say, get rid of her. Get her out of here. She's crying out after us. We're annoyed. She's bugging us. She won't leave them alone. They're over it. Get her out. Mind you, she's at home. She's in her home country. This is her territory, and they're foreigners here. But they tell her to leave. The second thing that Jesus does is he answers his friends with something that comes off sounding a little bit like a justification for his silence. He says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he doesn't send her away. He doesn't do what they ask. But he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This isn't my problem. Who's he saying this to? It doesn't really sound like he's talking to the disciples. It almost reads to me like he's talking to himself, like he's reminding himself of what he's supposed to be doing. Stay the course, stick to the plan, keep the boundaries. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The third thing that Jesus does is probably the hardest one. I've read lots of commentaries that try to spin it because it's just not very Jesus-y. But anyway, you slice it. Jesus insults this woman. He essentially calls her a dog. He reinforces his superior social and religious status, saying it's not right to throw the children's food to the dogs. Maybe that was a common idiom, like a culturally accepted paradigm about Jewish people and Canaanites. It's very clear Jews are the people of God, the children of God, who deserve the food. And Canaanites are just the dogs. So we have silence, and then an excuse, and then an insult. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, you're not alone. Don't worry. Spoiler alert, Jesus comes out okay in the end. And I'm not looking for a fight. I love Jesus. He's my favorite. I'm just reading the book without my Jesus has to be the hero of every story, every bit of every part of the story, glasses on. And it's okay. I checked with Pastor Dan. He said I could say this stuff. (laughs) Actually, his exact quote was, that sounds edgy. Don't get me in too much trouble. (laughs) That's real. That's what he emailed me. So we'll see, hang in there. (laughs) So what about the woman? What does she do? What is her experience of encountering Jesus? Well, first we need to take a look at who she is. She's a Canaanite woman speaking to a Jewish rabbi. This woman is like an outsider to the outsiders. She may be in her home territory, But if strangers can come in and feel safe treating her this way, she's clearly of very low social status. She is the one on the underside of the powers that be. And she's suffering. The text says that her daughter is tormented. The NIV, it's translated suffering terribly. Not just suffering, but suffering 
terribly. I bet that in a room this size, many of you know the pain of watching a child suffer. Watching a child go through a crisis. Whether illness or injury or spiritual or emotional or behavioral crisis. It's an experience I would never wish on anyone because I have been in hospital rooms over sleepless nights with my child. I have ridden in an ambulance while my child screamed and fought against restraints. I have had excruciating encounters with school administrators and camp counselors and even law enforcement officers on behalf of my child in crisis. And I can tell you that a mother whose child is tormented is willing to do just about anything, just about anything to help them. And that that mother is also suffering herself. But in addition to being marginalized and being in pain, this woman is very well informed. She is smart. She knows exactly who she's talking to. She knows who Jesus is. She uses his proper messianic title. She says, son of David, have mercy on me. She comes to him knowing what he can do. And her request is in keeping with what she knows him to be, who she knows him to be. The Messiah will bring healing and mercy. And in the scripture we see even, even foreigners know this. They know about the Jewish Messiah. This is what she needs. So her first approach, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. It's an appeal to Jesus' role as the Messiah. Remember a lot of his disciples are not even calling him that yet? So she's really smart. She gets it. And from the one person who should help her, she gets silence. And then by his followers, she gets hassled. And Jesus responds to their hassling by claiming he can't help her, even though he obviously can, because he later did. But here he says, nope, only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And that's one way to read first century Jewish messianic thought, but it's not the only way. It's not how Jesus describes his mission in other parts of the Gospels. So this has to sting when she hears it. So she lost her appeal to Jesus as Messiah. And her next move is to appeal to Jesus, appeal to his compassion just as a human being, not even as Messiah, just a person who might be able to help. She falls to her knees and she says, help me. Not because you should, but because you can. Because I am a person in pain. And his answer about children and bread and dogs, it's kind of like saying, everyone knows you don't deserve it. It's common knowledge. We don't give this kind of stuff to people like you. And hidden here is, is an admission. And he says, 
it's not right to throw the children's food to the dogs. He has the food, right? But it's not for her. The next line of this passage hits me like a punch to the gut. The woman says, yes, Lord. What? Yes, Lord? Yes, you're a doc? Yes, Lord, yes, that's right. She agrees with her own oppression, really, for the sake of her child's healing. How many mothers have had to do that? Have allowed themselves to be dehumanized, to be labeled as undeserving, to be treated like animals, in the hopes that it would save their child. I think of mothers in brothels. I think of mothers filling out paperwork at DCFS, signing their rights away, even though it's wrong, even though they know it's wrong, but they want their kid to be okay. Mothers taking back their abusive partners participating in their own abuse because maybe it puts food on their kid's table. Mothers trying to cross borders, knowing that they will not be welcomed, hoping that it will save their child's life. Mothers in desperate situations. She says, yeah, okay, yes, Lord. And this mother has learned not only to be bold, not only to be humble and well-informed, but also clever. So she accepts his terms. Okay, I'm a dog then. Even the dogs eat the scraps. Even the dogs eat the scraps. Even the dogs are treated better than this. I tried asking to be treated as one you came to save. I tried asking to be treated as a person, and you cut me down. Okay then. At least treat me like a dog. And finally, Jesus is humbled. Finally, this woman has persisted and even, you could say, outsmarted Jesus. A powerful man in front of his friends. When was the last time you were outsmarted in front of your friends? By someone of a way lower position than you. This is actually a very dangerous move for her. I think many powerful men would not be humbled. Many powerful people can't stand it when you outsmart them in front of someone else. They'd be humiliated and enraged, and this is where we get to see the Jesus we know. You've been waiting for this. You've been patient. Thank you. Jesus is humble. Jesus' encounter with this woman calls him to be himself to identify himself, to embody his identity that God has given him as healer, as Messiah. He's incredulous at her faith, and her daughter is instantly healed. Jesus is Jesus here for this woman. She did it. She got housing. She got funding for her kids' therapy. That insurance payment she was waiting for came through. 
she got up the courage to leave. She crossed the border. She insisted that Jesus be Jesus for her daughter, persisting through no after no after no until Jesus turned his face to her and said yes. Jesus turns his face. He turns his face toward us in our pain. Church, many people come to us like this woman came to Jesus, tormented and suffering. What will we do? We could use the same excuses that Jesus used. We could be silent because the person crying isn't really one of ours. We could logically explain, based on our mission, why it's really better if we just keep our resources, our healing, our attention within these parameters. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He had a legitimate excuse. We could even argue that those who are suffering and desperate for mercy, maybe they deserve whatever suffering they're enduring. But that's not the part of the story that the church is called to emulate. We can follow Jesus in his humility, in his compassion, in his willingness to change his mind about someone, in his decision to turn toward pain and desperation. And when we see that pain and that desperation of others, can we refuse to be silent, even if we have a reason to be? To refuse to claim we're just not called to that. It's not my calling. It's outside the boundaries. Can we refuse to yield to narratives about who is deserving of care and dignity and refuse to allow our brothers and our sisters, the children of God, to be treated worse than we treat our dogs? Can we refuse that in the name of Jesus? I hope so. I hope so. I hope we will follow Jesus in compassion, in humility, in openness, in a willingness to look bad in front of our friends for the sake of the gospel, the gospel that reaches down into the depths and says, Jesus has been here. Jesus gives healing. Jesus will not abandon you in your pain. May it be so. Amen.